This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. Two days ago, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts made a very important decision that reflects on the future of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and the technology sector in Massachusetts as well. We have with us to discuss this opinion and decision by the Supreme Judicial Court, Cedric de Leon. He is the director of the Labor Center at UMass Amherst. Professor de Leon teaches courses at the Labor Center as well as being the director. He teaches American labor law and political sociology. He has his doctorate from the University of Michigan, his master's in social and political sciences from the University of Cambridge, his BA from Yale, and he has been an active member in the labor movement for nearly 30 years, and starting, including working on the United Farm Workers campaigns uh, in California and other states. Professor Cedric de Leon, director of the Labor Center, thank you so much for being with us. What did the Supreme Judicial Court do, and why does it matter? Uh, the SJC basically threw out uh, a proposed measure to put to the voters um, that would have given them uh, the right to uh, classify their drivers um, as independent contractors, and in doing so, basically uh, allow them to not pay any um, uh, taxes or give uh, their drivers access to unemployment insurance and workers' comp. Um, and they also wanted a liability shield in case any of their drivers or passengers were harmed uh, in the course uh, of uh, a ride. Um, and essentially, the court uh, threw out uh, the proposed uh, measure, um, saying that um, they, they buried the liability shield um, uh, in, in the language uh, and it therefore wasn't clear and it wouldn't be clear enough to Massachusetts voters uh, what they were voting for or against. Um, this is this is a massive uh, ruling uh, because they they succeeded in getting a similar measure passed um, in California, infamous Prop 22. Uh, they wanted to do it in Massachusetts because California and Massachusetts had the strongest laws against misclassifying workers. Uh, as independent contractors, and they believed that if they could knock down California and Massachusetts, they could run the table across the country. This puts a roadblock in the way uh, of that effort on the part of the tech giants. How did this get on the ballot? I mean, what did the tech companies do? To, they had to collect a lot of signatures, I take it. How did they accomplish that? Uh, well, I, I mean, it, it, yes, that, and they lobbied uh, 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 the Massachusetts legislature. They got a lot of political uh, power uh, behind them. Um, and so, you know, what, what was left to them was a bunch of procedural hurdles, in, in, including um, uh, including getting it passed um, um, jurists. Uh, be, and, and the only reason why they had to do that was because of the labor movement uh, through that roadblock in their way, and said, "Look, this is this 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 is uh, uh, this uh, this particular measure is is unconstitutional." And without the without the the work of the labor movement to basically put a, a speed bump in their way, uh, they they would have they would it would have sailed through. Uh, so, you know, they they basically they they were this close to putting it in front of Massachusetts voters for a lot of the the the, the typical reasons. It's not clear it would have passed. A lot, the polling comes out really differently, has come out really differently, depending on how the question is phrased. What's your view of that? That's right. 
my view of that is that you know the the that um, the tech giants were up on the air advertising um, or earlier than the than the labor movement. Um, uh, the the labor center and a number of other um, organizations were in the process of um, collecting data and doing research uh, that would have been the basis of uh, of the labor movement's uh, advertising campaign against the measure. Uh, but we you know b- before uh, we could go up on the air uh, with that uh, with that data, uh, which would have shown that you know that this measure would have been absolutely devastating to the Commonwealth. Uh, the uh, the Supreme Judicial Court basically knocked it down. What do you see as the major problem with this proposal? What would it have done that would have been so bad for the drivers? Well, uh, the the main thing um, uh, is that um, being misclassified as as an independent um, contractor makes it. Um, Exceedingly difficult for drivers to uh, to unionize um, and uh, and and thereby you know determine um, their own wages, benefits, and working conditions. Um, the other the other issues, of course, would that they they would not have had um, access to to unemployment insurance or workers' comp. That's what independent contract contractor misclassification does. But but the the other piece of this right is that you know Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, uh, and other rideshare companies are trying to basically pass off you know the cost that they would um, uh, have to incur onto the general public, basically asking um, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, including the drivers themselves, to subsidize um, uh, the the tech giants. And the work that we're doing at the Labor Center is to, act, to precisely sort of outline what are the public subsidies that basically Massachusetts voters would be on the hook for um, if Uber and Lyft got their way. And what we know uh, right now, just on the preliminary analysis, is that we would have been on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars, at possibly you know um, topping uh, over a billion dollars, to basically support these private companies who are making uh, profit. Um, you know, hand over fist, uh, you know, um, on the backs of these drivers and on, on the backs of the, of the public. Uh, that's, you know, that, there's, there's also the liability shield, which just basically makes them, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it allows them to basically harm passengers and drivers uh, with impunity and with no cost to them. I mean, I don't even know how much that would have cost, but we do know that the public subsidy would have been substantial. So, Cedric DeLeon, this ballot question will not be on the ballot in November, which means that the Uber, the Lyft, the DoorDash, and the other drivers will, in fact, have to be, as I understand it, considered employees with all the benefits of being an employee and none of the disadvantages of being a so-called independent contractor without any of the benefits, of course, because that's what being an independent contractor means. That said, is this fight over or it just is going to take another couple of years till the tech giants get this back on the ballot, spend hundreds of millions of dollars of adver- on advertising and bring it back and try to, well, win again. Uh, I, I don't think this is over. You know, they, they started feeling their oats after winning in California and they, they, and so this, this measure was more ambitious. 
the independent contractor language is something that we've seen. Uh, you, you and I know that you know bosses have been trying to misclassify people as independent contractors for at least a generation at this point. That's not new. The liability shield was an ambitious reach for them. And so what they could do now is basically pull back on the, the liability shield language and just put before the voters the independent contractor language. If, they're, if they do that, we have a struggle ahead. And I, I suspect that they will. I, 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 think, I think if the labor movement basically sits back and says, hey, you know, we, we, we got them you know, where we want them, this thing is over, I think that would be a, a, a bad miscalculation. Uh, so I think they're going to come back with um, narrower language, more transparent language that the court will, will find palatable, um, and then we'll have a fight on our hands. And the question is, what will the labor movement do to organize um, uh, and do the strategic research uh, to, to defeat that? Because it's, it's going to come back. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain of that. We're going we're gonna to leave it there. Cedric de Leon is the director of the Labor Center at UMass Amherst. We will follow this with you. Thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. There's the Sauvignon Blanc side and the salami sandwich side, the brick and feather beer side and the broccoli side, the deli side and the Don Julio side. State Street in Northampton has two sides, grocery on one side, beer, wines, and spirits on the other. Cooper's Corner in Florence has two sides, grocery on one side, beer, wines, and spirits on the other. But the nice thing about State Street and Cooper's, you don't have to pick a side. You can choose both sides at both stores. The world feels so divided sometimes. For once, don't choose sides. Go to both sides at both stores. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton and Cooper's Corner on the other side of Northampton in Florence. Two sides, same coin. Learn 
Spanish, learn French, or German. Learn a language with the International Language Institute. Speaking the language with others who are learning is inspiring. ILI is a PDP provider for the state of Massachusetts and an accredited provider of continuing education units. Learn Spanish, French, German. Ten-week part-time classes start June 27th. Sign up online. One of the world's top language schools is right here, the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. And tonight, the state delegation is in solidarity with our mayor and with Congressman McGovern, who is leading the charge to stop the closure of the VA and Leeds. So we are completely committed as your state elected officials, and we are called tonight by our congressman to stand with him, and we will be here tonight, and we will be here every step of the way. 101.5, and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our usual Thursday Reverend and the Rabbi segment. We have with us Reverend Michael McSherry, who is the senior minister at Edwards Church here in Northampton. We hope to be joined by Congregation B'nai Israel Rabbi Justin David. And I would like to begin, thank you, Rabbi, I see that you are with us. Thanks so much. I'd like to begin by asking you both a question um, that has been bothering me all week as I get over and over again these solicitations from Christian evangelical ministers with overtly political tropes saying, I want to be on your radio show. And they're incredibly well organized. Um, they have a lot of publicity power behind them. Uh, and they are, of course, on radio stations and television stations across the country. And what I want to know from the two of you, which is why there is so much currency, so much firepower behind the evangelical right-wing movements, and by comparison, so little publicity, it's seemingly uh, by comparison, that is given to progressive, for lack of a better word, uh, uh, denominations and congregations. Uh, let me start with you, if I might. Uh, Michael McSherry? Thanks, Bill. Um, two answers. The first is um, to, to borrow from politics you know, I'm not the I'm not a member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Um, <laughs> progressives progressives tend to be harder to corral. Um, I think uh, you know unless they're outraged. And um, if you look at the uh, the work that the Republican Party did on um, getting state legislatures and governors and people elected to gerrymander. You know that was a decade-long project, um, and and progressives don't don't exhibit the same sort of rigorous discipline. Um, my own denomination, the the UCC, the United Church of Christ, does have um, a DC office and does engage in um, some degree of uh, public theology or advocacy work um, on justice issues. And we try to collaborate with others of uh, similar values to, to increase our impact. Now, the UCC, the United Church of Christ, is a very large organization with hundreds, maybe thousands of congregations and certainly uh, an enormous number of members. You would think that that kind of a uh, organization would receive a lot of publicity, a lot of coverage, because it speaks with a voice for millions of people. And yet, 
again, back to my original question, it seems to pale by comparison with the evangelicals. So I'm just wondering if you would have a further thought on that before we turn to Rabbi Justin David. Um, There are actually uh, probably more evangelicals, more um, conservative evangelicals in the country than there are UCC members. Well, the numbers do speak, and I assume, by the way, the UCC congregations, uh, mostly in the uh, north or northeast, uh, and evangelicals in the south, and so there is both a geographic as well as a political divide? But the the UCC is not um, limited to the northeast. We do have perhaps a higher concentration of congregations here, but um, there's strong representation in the Midwest and on the left coast, um, and we're more sprinkled geographically through the south and southeast. Did you say left coast on purpose? <laughs> that was terrific. Just a habit. I got it. Thank you. Well, let me turn to Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel. Uh, you are a progressive person. You have a uh, opening, open and affirming congregation, as does uh, Michael McSherry from Edwards Church. Why is it that uh, the political progressives seem to be, well, seem to pale in comparison with the uh, political authority and power of the right wing, in your judgment, Rabbi? So I I think you just brought up something, authority and power, and how we organize ourselves. And I'm going to speak off the cuff here because I really don't have deep knowledge on this, but it's my perception that... um, that uh, you know, Christian uh, evangelicalism, uh, as with um, sort of right-leaning religious communities in general, organize around hierarchy and power. And what I believe the Christian right did, beginning probably in the late '70s, as it started organizing, was to um, craft a product that was incredibly appealing which was deep personal religious faith and ties to community, which I see as really laudable, with uh, an authoritarian power structure um, that was a response to uh, progressive tendencies in American life, and at that time, um, second wave feminism, which I think was appealing to a lot of people. And those two things together, which had tremendous social capital in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, were so powerful that they could um, paste over the darker aspects of the political agenda, which included uh, racism, uh, restricting or or eliminating um, women's choice in healthcare, um, and, and basically giving a free pass to, um, to big business and corporations and, and everything else. So that's proven to be an incredibly enticing formula. And uh, our, you know, and, and, you know, I can only speak from my personal experience uh, in the communities I've been a part of, the impulse has been democratic. You know, that no. doesn't rule the day. The rabbi doesn't get to tell you who goes to heaven and who doesn't. The rabbi doesn't get to tell you which way to vote. I have an opinion, 
but my opinion exists with the opinions of everyone else in my community. Rabbi Justin uh, David, think, you bring up a point that I think is really important, which is that with the anticipated overruling of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court, the issue of abortion is going to be a state-by-state -state fight uh, for, on all sorts of uh, issues regarding reproductive choice. And I'm wondering yeah. whether you think that that organizing effort that will go on both uh, for those who will say all abortion is murder in the state and the and federal and state officials should be making that choice for women. And those who say, wait a second, this is a really difficult personal choice and the government should stay out of it, basically a conservative as well as a liberal position, but not a theological one. So where do you think that kind of organizing will take us? Michael Mosheri, let me start with you and then I'll go back to the rabbi. I had to mute you there. Uh, there we go. Perfect. <laughs> uh, that's, that's okay. Um, you know, that's an excellent question, and I'm still working on it because I, I when I um, when I look around, I I feel like we're in this place politically as a country where some progressive causes are having trouble getting the same level of engagement as we did in the last uh, presidential election um, in this in this midterm cycle and um, and yes the organizing has already started on the state level to uh, preserve um, access to abortion um, I'm, I'm still following that one bill I don't have a lot of insight to share rabbi Given that, we're going to give you the final word here this morning. How are we progressives going to, or how are you as the leaders and spiritual leaders going to help organize uh, a fight for uh, individual autonomy and women's rights? Yeah. I don't know about the political strategy, but I'll tell you the thought that's in my mind. Um, 2018, uh, I was in Paris, and outside the Parthenon, which is the which is the um, burial site for sort of the, you know, France's great leaders in every aspect. Uh, there was someone who had just been buried there. Her name was Simone Weil, W-E-I-L. Not the, not the theosophy writer from the early part of the 20th century, but this Simone Weil was uh, a Holocaust survivor um, who became part, who became a lawyer and a French judge and legislature, uh, legislator and eventually representative to the EU Parliament. She was the author of France's abortion law, right? She wrote the law that made access to abortion and by extension, women's reproductive health care uh, accessible in France in the late 60s, early 70s. And I don't know what the politics are, but we have to acknowledge that any society that offers opportunity and dignity and autonomy to all of its citizens has to include access to health care and abortion. We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Rabbi Justin David, who is the rabbi, a rabbi at Congregation B'nai Israel, and Michael McSherry, who is the senior pastor, pastor at Edwards Church. This has been our Reverend and the Rabbi segment on earlier this morning because we're going to be speaking with the Cuban ambassador to the United States in just a moment. Thank you both so very much for being with us. We really appreciate your time and your insights. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. A plastic flag with gum on the back. 
fell out on the floor. Well, I picked it up and I ran outside. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The East Hampton School Committee held an emergency meeting last night to establish a non-binding good faith statement establishing a collaboration between the city government and school department. The Gazette reports the meeting was called after Mayor Nicola Chappelle indicated on Tuesday that she was filing two open meeting complaints against the school department. Bay State Franklin Medical Center nurses are still negotiating a contract with hospital administrators over wages, staffing ratios, and benefits after six months. The Massachusetts Nurses Association organized a protest in support of the nurses on Wednesday ahead of the latest bargaining session with Bay State Health at the St. James Episcopal Church in Greenfield. Emergency room nurse Ariel Etkoff Eli. I mean, I worry literally that people are going to die because we're not going to have this service. You know, mental health care is literally life-saving care. Bay State Health has plans to close the mental health units in Greenfield, Palmer, and Westfield in August of next year and instead send patients to a new facility being built in Holyoke. And 35 communities have been awarded grants through the Volunteer Fire Assistance Program. The program offers grant money to rural and volunteer fire departments across Massachusetts that serve less than 10,000 residents. The funding will be used in training and preventative efforts and help departments buy new equipment. Conway, Plainfield, Shelburne, South Deerfield, West Hampton, Waitley, and Williamsburg are among the towns who will receive the grants. Mostly cloudy today, some scattered showers this morning, chance for an isolated light shower or sprinkle this afternoon, a high of 74 to 78. Mostly cloudy, scattered shower or two tonight, overnight low 58 to 64. Sun cloud mix, warm and humid tomorrow, scattered showers, even a few thunderstorms possible, a high of 84 to 88. Dry, brisk, breezy this weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Las primeras vacunas contra el COVID-19 para bebés, niños pequeños y preescolares de Estados Unidos se acercaron un paso más el miércoles. Los asesores de vacunas de la Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos aprobaron las vacunas de Moderna y Pfizer para los niños más pequeños. Los expertos externos votaron por unanimidad que los beneficios de las inyecciones superan cualquier riesgo para los niños menores de 5 años, es decir, aproximadamente 18 millones de niños. Son el último grupo de edad en los Estados Unidos sin acceso a las vacunas contra el COVID-19 y muchos padres han estado ansiosos por proteger a sus hijos pequeños. Si se borran todos los pasos reglamentarios, las vacunas deberían estar disponibles la próxima semana. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden emitió una orden ejecutiva el miércoles para bloquear lo que su administración llama ataques legislativos discriminatorios contra la comunidad LGBTQ por parte de los estados controlados por los republicanos, declarando ante una ceremonia de firma repleta de activistas, el orgullo está de vuelta en la Casa Blanca. Aprovechando el dinero ya asignado a las agencias federales en lugar de requerir nuevos fondos, Biden dijo que la orden está destinada a contrarrestar más de 300 leyes anti y LGBTQ introducidas por los legisladores estatales solo durante el año pasado. El Departamento de Salud y Servicios Humanos redactará nuevas políticas para ampliar la atención a las familias LGBTQ y el Departamento de Educación elaborará reglas para proteger mejor a los estudiantes LGBTQ en las escuelas públicas. El presidente, la primera dama Jill Biden y la vicepresidenta Kamala Harris asistieron a una multitudinaria recepción en el Salón Este de la Casa Blanca, donde el pasillo adyacente estaba decorado con los colores del arco iris. 
Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome to the show Leonis Torres Rivera, who is the ambassador from Cuba to the United States. She has been involved in Cuban diplomatic missions for over 30 years. She previously has served as Cuba's ambassador to Vietnam. She has held the post of ambassador to the United States since January 2021. Madam Ambassador, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. As you know, Congressman Jim McGovern, our congressman, uh, was part of the delegation with President Obama to Cuba during those, that brief time when relations between the United States and Cuba improved. And there were some 20 or more uh, memoranda of uh, understanding that were accomplished and uh, put into effect between the United States and Cuba. It did seem that there was a new era of relationships between the United States and Cuba under President Obama. And now President Obama's vice president, Joe Biden, is now the president. And yet things seem to have deteriorated, at least to the extent, to the extent that uh, Biden has pretty much continued the policies of the, of the Trump administration. I would appreciate your giving us the perspective, the Cuban perspective, on the relations between the United States and Cuba at this time and how they compare with the relations that were ongoing or at least being uh, created during the Obama administration. Madam Ambassador? Hi, good morning. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to, to join this uh, program, and I'm more than pleased in answering uh, your question. It's always a good opportunity to to inform the, the American audience on on dated facts about the Cuban reality and the relation with the U.S. Well, uh, since Biden took office in January 2021, the U.S. policy towards Cuba has, uh, has been under revision, revision, according to what we heard uh, from public statement of U.S. government high-level officials. For us, this meant that the hostile policy implemented by uh, Donald Trump remained intact through the whole 2021 and the beginning of this year, as well as uh, the harmful effects of this uh, policy on the Cuban society. In this period, I mean, in 2022, we had a limited announcement made by the Biden administration and a meeting of migration talk, but the current state of relation isn't comparable to the level that existed during the, Obama, uh, the Obama's government. As you said, between 2015 and 2017, 22 MOUs were signed between Cuba and the U.S. in areas covering law enforcement, migration, counterterrorism, and more and many of them are still in force. And our aim is to fully implement these cooperation schemes. Cuba has conveyed to the Biden administration our willingness to take the necessary steps to advance bilateral relations and cooperate in areas of uh, mutual interest. And we know that the majority of the U.S. population support this uh, uh, policy. But as you said, we are in a, in a different point that we were during the Obama administration, a very different one. So let me ask you this, Madam Ambassador. Uh, what does Cuba want 
now from the United States. What do you want the Biden administration to do or to stop doing? Well, uh, as I said, we have 22 MOUs that could be the starting point to cooperate in different areas uh, of mutual interest. We are neighboring countries. And we have issues in law enforcement, like migration, like uh, narcotics, like terrorism. Uh, we have a direct postal mail that was reestablished during the Obama and is not working uh, as we uh, uh, had an agreement. We have uh, we should be cooperating in economic issues, in uh, scientific issues, in biotech. For example, we uh, in Cuba we have. Managed to to control the pandemic very well, or well, and we should be cooperating on that with the with the U.S. So what we want is to sit as equal partners to sit and talk about anything with due respect, and uh, to treat each other as a, a partner, as, as I said. I know that tourism has played in a very large part in the Cuban economy for a long time. I also know that COVID played havoc with that part of the Cuban economy. Where, can, where does the United States' relations with, with Cuba stand with regard to tourism? And, uh, and then I'm going to ask you about COVID-19. But tell us about tourism first, if you would, please. Well, uh a U.S. citizen or, or anyone living in the U.S. cannot travel to Cuba as a tourist. So uh, if you want, let's say you want to go to Cuba now, you cannot do it. You have to be, you have to travel and under 12 categories uh, established by the U.S. administration, by the U.S. government, but you cannot freely travel to Cuba. Cuba is probably the only one country that you cannot travel. And if you decided to do it, it's like a nightmare because you have to find out where do, do you want to where do you want to stay or where you can stay because there are a restricted list of uh, uh, accommodation places of accommodation so it's not that let's say I'm under these 12 categories I can go no then you have to see, to think where I am going to stay how I'm going to travel the flights and so on recently there were uh, as I said some measures uh, that were announced in last May, uh, we find out that these are positive uh, measures, of course, in the right direction, but are still very limited because we are still, QA is still included in the list of state sponsors of terrorism, which is a, a, a very unfair because we are not a terrorist country. On the contrary, we are a country that has been victim of terrorism. Uh, but going back to uh, to the to the right to travel. For example, if you want to go to Cuba in a cruise uh, ship, you cannot go because it's not allowed anymore. It was allowed during the Obama administration. So it's very difficult uh, to travel. As I said, uh, for example, in those measures, they authorize the people-to-people uh, -people, uh, travel, but you have to go in a group. You cannot go by yourself, as it was allowed during the Obama administration. So there are big changes in, uh, still with the Biden administration and the Obama administration. We are, spe we are speaking with uh, Leonis Torres Rivera, who is the Cuban ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Madam Ambassador, I'd like to uh, stay with this tourism question for a minute and ask you how COVID-19 
has affected and how Cuba has dealt with COVID-19, given how important uh, tourism from countries other than the United States has been to the Cuban economy? And how has the Cuban government responded and tried to mitigate COVID-19? Well, Cuba was hit uh, heavily by the COVID-19 as all countries in the world. Uh, of this pandemic has been terrible for our economy because we depend uh, a lot from tourism and also uh, because of the because we are a sanction a country that lives under uh, the more comprehensive sanctions uh, system in in the world uh, coming from the the US so uh, imagine if you add both of them no tourism and the sanctions it's been very hard from for our economy to to go uh, to go ahead but uh, we have managed to control the pandemic well we produce uh, five vaccine candidates, three of them uh, are already vaccines, and we have uh, vaccinated more than uh, 96% of those who are eligible for being vaccinated. And from those, more than 75% of the, of the population is uh, boosted. And all that has been done with our own vaccine. So, uh, humble, we, humbly, we could say that we have managed to, to control COVID. Now you can travel to Cuba. You don't need to uh, show a, a negative PCR or proof of vaccination because uh, the, most of the population is fully vaccinated. And we have also uh, uh, updated our protocols, medical protocols, for the treatment of those who have been ill. We have, uh, as it has been very difficult for Cuba to, to, to buy medicines and to buy supplies for, the, for produce those uh, uh, medicines that we need to treat the patients. We have managed to uh, have our own medicines, and uh, uh, it has been, we have been successful in this uh, effort. We have also provided help to other countries with our dogs, and also some of them with our own bags well. I'd like to continue th this conversation for at least a little while longer, and I'd like to know in particular how the sanctions that have now been in place from the United States and imposed on Cuba uh, since the Kennedy administration, uh, how they are affecting Cuba, its economy, and its people. Well, uh, is the... As I said, the, the, the sanctions against Cuba is the more uh, comprehensive and uh, also we could say the more the most uh, uh, old sanction system uh, against any countries. For instance, uh, as I said, Cuba remains in the uh, arbitrary list of countries uh, sponsor of terrorism. And that has That's the United Nations list or the U.S. list of no, a U.S. Department, the a U.S. State Department list. Okay, thank you. And, and that has a huge negative impact of our on our economy, because we often suffer the refusal of banking on financial institutions to operate with our own entities and or individuals. Uh, for example, there is enormous uh, persecution towards all uh, our transactions and 
Many times, counterparts uh, prefer to walk away rather than engaging with Cuba in any business because they fear US, uh, U.S. sanctions. And this situation has an impact on all sectors, in health, in education, in agriculture, in pharmaceutical. And with the sec for example, with the exemption of uh, some foods, bilateral trade between Cuba and the U.S. remains prohibited. When we, are, when we are neighboring countries that should be having natural economic uh, relations. As I said, U.S. citizens are still prohibited from traveling to Cuba unless they have a, a special license, but in no case they can be possible uh, to, to go for tourism activities. Ambassador Torres Rivera, let me ask you that. If, if, about that, if I might. Um, are there shortages of food and medicine and other essentials in Cuba today? Yes, they are. Yes, we have that. We have that. And as I said, the, the, the COVID pandemic has hit very hard Cuba, to Cuba. But if you uh, put on top of that the sanctions, imagine how a country could operate without almost any bank, without uh, with the, with the, with the, uh, the impediment of uh, that many companies in the world are afraid to uh, to track Cuba because they be sanctioned. So it's very it's very difficult. Any shipment that goes to Cuba transporting fuel, oil, is a, a is, is a problem because they chase the the company who sell the the oil, the armor company. So it's a nightmare to bring a shipment of oil to Cuba. It's very difficult. One important measure that have been uh, 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 impacting our economy for decades is that we cannot import any product that has more than 10% of U.S. components. Imagine, we cannot buy uh, planes, for example. We cannot buy many of the equipment that is uh, necessary to update uh, our te telecommunication system or internet, even when we have a comprehensive plan to update and widen the internet in, in our country. So it's difficult. The sanctions, the U.S. sanctions, impact every sector of the life of a Cuban family. Ambassador Torres Rivera, I would like to turn to another international matter, if I might, and I know this could be a long answer, but I'd ask you to see if you could summarize it for us. Cuba abstained at the United Nations when it came to the uh, vote on Ukraine. And I'm wondering if you could, uh, could tell us what Cuba's position is with regard to Russia, I think, is in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, first of, first of all, Cuba is a country of peace that has been victim of aggression military aggression in the past. So uh, we deeply regret the loss of life of, uh, of innocent civilians in this uh, conflict. Uh, the Cuban people, as, as I said, have, have been victims of uh, military aggression, and we have had and have a close relation besides with the, uh, with the Ukraine, Ukrainian uh, people. Cuba has in the, at the United Nations clearly expressed its position in favor of a solution that guarantees the security and sovereignty of all that 
addresses intimate uh, humanitarian concern. We defend, we strongly defend international law and the UN chapter, uh, and we oppose, and this is uh, very important that uh, we stress this, we uh, deeply and firmly oppose the use of the use or even the threat of use of force against any state. Uh, we always believe that dialogue and negotiations, not the war, are the only way to resolve uh, any conflict, any kind of conflict. And Cuba will continue to, to advocate for a serious and constructive and realistic diplomatic solution to the to the current crisis in uh, between uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. Prior to the invasion of what Putin calls a special military operation, did Cuba have good relations with uh, Russia? We have good relations with Russia, as we have good relations with many countries, most of the countries of the world. And, yeah. Let me ask you this. The... As we were talking before, just before we went on the air, Cuba has not received a lot of press coverage in the United States recently, probably because we have a limited uh, ability to think about too many topics at one time. But one of the uh, pieces of coverage that Cuba did receive was about the government's response to protests about the shortages that you've told us about and the lack of uh, medicine and other essentials. And I'm wondering if you could respond to those criticisms of the government, please? Well, uh, the coverage to the to the to Cuba in the US has been, as you said, always very limited and uh, we could say also very biased. It has been like that uh, during history. If you are American that have never traveled to Cuba or have never be, been exposed to a person who has traveled to Cuba or who studied Cuba, uh, you cannot, I mean, you have to think in a, in a Cuba that is very far from, from the reality. And uh, then going back to, the, to your question about uh, July 11, in July 11, uh, we have, as you said, uh, some protests in Cuba. At that time, we have a very difficult situation because uh, the, we have an spike in the number of cases because of the Delta variant, and at, at that moment, the population was not uh, uh, fully vaccinated as, as we have now, and we have, uh, after one and a half year of, of uh, lockdowns and the, the, all uh, that I explained with the impact in the economy, uh, due to the COVID and the sanctions, the situation was uh, really hard. And you have there the, some people that went out to, to protest and to express real uh, and legitimate grievances that they have because of all this situation. But you have people also that uh, were uh, instigated and paid uh, since, uh, I mean, from the, from the U.S. As you know, the, the U.S. Congress passed every year uh, allocate every year 20 million U.S. dollars for regime change uh, program uh, coming uh, from the U.S., as I said. And those are people who, are, uh, who were paid, uh, who, who received some of them funds from the, from the U.S. 
and uh, uh, that that was July 11. And after that, uh, there were people who uh, uh, vandalized. And during the, the protest, we have people who vandalized shops, uh, uh, who vandalized public and private uh, property, who hurt policemen, who hurt uh, uh, in the, uh, private individual. And uh, those people are uh, uh, went under a certain. Uh, a judicial process with, of course, always respecting our laws and our due process in Cuba. But that was uh, July 11. But uh, if we talk about the, the media coverage, at that time we uh, saw in the news uh, fake news, very, uh, I mean, some of them that were uh, here in the, in, the, in the news in the U.S., with images, for example, uh, from protests in Argentina, in Egypt, even uh, or in in Spain, not not specifically pr uh, protests, but for example, some uh, games that people went went to see, and they they said they were in Cuba, or you have uh, some news in the U.S. where some blurred, uh, some signs were blurred. Madam, Amb Madam Ambassador, I hate to cut you off, but we are really going to have to go. I really appreciate your time, and I hope we can continue this conversation in the future. We have been speaking with Leonis Tor Torres Rivera, who is the Cuban ambassador to the United States. Thank you so much for your time today, Madam Ambassador. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Good jobs, good eats. This Thursday, June 16th from 1 to 3, free parking, free giveaways, and free treats. It's a fair, the Mass Hire Holyoke Job Fair at Heritage Park in Holyoke. This Thursday, June 16th, come meet with over 50 employers in banking, health, education, hospitality, gaming, and more, and all in the great outdoors. So bring your appetite and find your dream job at Heritage Park in Holyoke this Thursday from 1 to 3. Visit MassHireHolyoke.org for more info. Brought to you by Mass Hire Holyoke and Business Solutions. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Mike Buckmaster, Senior Vice President, Commercial Lending at the Greenfield Cooperative Bank and Northampton Co-op Bank Division. We have the best local commercial lending team in the Pioneer Valley. We're an SBA preferred lender, and unlike other banks, each of our team members has individual lending authority for fast local decisions. Hi, I'm Barbara Campbell, Assistant Vice President of Commercial Lending. Whether you're looking for a business loan or a line of credit, we can get your plans off the ground. 
come and see us for help. And I'm Jim Alexander, Vice President, Commercial Lending. You can reach any of our experienced commercial loan officers by phone or through bestlocalbank.com. Meet one of us at your business or any of our locations. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Kick off summer in style with a free concert from Lux Deluxe. It's the Montague Public Library Summer Kickoff Party. This Saturday from 3.30 to 7.30 at Pesky Umskid Park. A parachute playtime for kids, face painting, food, a performance by Jaduk student dancers, and then rock out with Lux Deluxe. Brought to you by the Montague Public Libraries, the Friends of the Libraries, the Mass Cultural Council, and the Community Connections Coalition. Come see Lux Deluxe for free this Saturday evening, Pesky Umskid Park on Avenue A. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. I apologize for all of the things that I didn't get to ask the ambassador from Cuba to the United States, and I really hope we'll have the opportunity to talk further with her. Yes, I understand we could have gone into all of those topics at much greater depth, but I thought it was important to try to hear some perspective from her about the relations between the United States and Cuba. So thank you for bearing with me on that. Tomorrow on our show... We will have Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. Always interesting to talk to the representative. We also have Max Page, the president-elect of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and a special production of Artbeat with Donabel Cassis. All that will be and will begin at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Have a great day, everyone. Saluting our community's first responders, today and every day. Greenfield Fire Chief Bob Strayon on his crew's tireless service and their professionalism and resiliency shown during COVID. Every day is a constant threat of becoming exposed or getting ill from the virus. We take our precautions when we interact with the public, especially on medical calls. We use our proper protective equipment. Um, I just commend them for the efforts that they've put from day one, before the pandemic, starting to recover from the pandemic. The fire department, especially the firefighters, they stand ready for any challenge that comes their way, and uh, they've done a great job and they will continue to do a great job to keep the community safe. We're grateful for our first responders, and so are our sponsors. Lundgren Honda of Greenfield. Experience it. Everyone at Lundgren Honda knows our first responders give so much to our community, so now they want to give back to them. In appreciation for their service and dedication, local first responders are invited to LundgrenHondaOfGreenfield.com's homepage for details on an exclusive offer. Thank you for keeping our communities safe. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10.